When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Happy Friday, everyone. This is Andreas Steno from Real Vision speaking. We are live with the concluding Real Vision daily briefing of a big macro week. We've had 50 basis points from the Federal Reserve. We've had 50 basis points from the European Central Bank, and we've had 50 basis points from Bank of England. But my guest today is very certain that we are staring directly into a disinflationary scenario. So should central bankers get their eyes checked? That's the question of the day. And uh, my guest, Warren Pies, the co-founder of 314 Research, is the guy to answer that question. Welcome, Warren. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Warren, um, if we look at the rhetoric um, among the big three central banks, Bank of England, the European Central Bank and the Federal Reserve this week, it doesn't sound as if they are convinced that this inflation is upcoming. So what are they seeing that you're not seeing? Well, well, they're kind of stuck in a, a, a very difficult situation right now. And this is, we wrote our report, uh, we've been kind of pounding the table on peak inflation for a bit. And I think anyone who's been watching my appearances on Real Vision know where we stand here. And so we, we wrote a report in uh, early November, RIP inflation, basically dancing on the grave inflation, calling the peak. But we did say we expected uh, Fed rhetoric to remain max hawkish. And so I think that's the policy tool they're trying to convince the market they're going to be tough. The, the big, at 40,000 feet, the, the problem here is they can't afford to let financial conditions loosen at this stage of the game. So they have to try to talk tough, even in the face of data that's clearly disinflating. And so I think, you know, that's really the trap they're in. And it's going to force them, it has forced them, in my opinion, to now be behind the curve. And so with each passing meeting, and our forecast is that they will pause in Q1, but that they should pause at the very latest right now, given the data. That's what we think, that's how we see it. And so we're now clearly, squarely into the world of policy mistake. And with each passing meeting where the Fed raises rates, given, the, and I think you're gonna see some really disinflationary trends we go through the next three or four months. I know you agree with that. So I'll get your opinion too on that. But uh, I think that the, it's going to, we're going to venture more and more into that policy mistake world as we hike rates. So that's how I see it though. Let's have a look at the inflation details in just a second. But, but before we get to that, uh, today's market action basically confirmed that the market now finally received the memo from central banks. If you ask me, we've had a couple of days in a row with negative market price action in equities, both in Europe and across the pond in the US. Uh, so what do you make of that price action post this central bank action? Do you think we have more downside upcoming in equities? I do. Uh, I do. I think that... Um... Our, our view is, again, we wrote this quiet battle series, and the idea is that the market's going to be supported, we're in a range, and the market's going to be supported on the downside with disinflating CPI and inflation data. 
And so each time you get that kind of unload of data, just like we had the CPI day and the market rallied here, you could rally up to that 4,000 level and that's resistance. You get up to 4,000 though, and the concerns become more about the macro environment, forward earnings, and ultimately you're gonna have the Fed pushing that, pushing down the market. Because like we said, they wanna stay max hawkish in their rhetoric to keep financial conditions from loosening too much. Just to back up, when we say financial conditions, like, and this is a chart that we put together, I don't have it today, but um, essentially financial conditions are stock prices, if you think about it. I mean, stock prices lead credit spreads. Everyone talks about credit spreads, but we have, there's a really clear relationship between stock prices and high yield spreads and then high yield spreads and investment grade spreads. So for anyone, when we say financial conditions, that's code, that's fancy code for the stock market. So the Fed doesn't want the stock market going up. So you're, you have a, a huge cap from central bankers and then ultimately from forward earnings and macro outlook that our caps equities at 4,000. Warren, if we assume that you're right, um, that the Fed will eventually pause during the first quarter of 2023, what's going to happen to equities in such a scenario? I know that you've done a historical study on equity performance after a pause from the Federal Reserve. Yeah, so typically equities rally in a pause. We have one case where that didn't happen, that was 2000, eerily similar to where we're at right now uh, in, in the markets. And so that, put that aside for a minute, step back and get even more granular. Typically this, this whole cycle we're talking about where the Fed needs to talk the market down before they pause is not abnormal. So every other pause we've seen you usually see a five to 10% decline in the month preceding the, the Fed's pause. So while markets outperform or go up during the pause period, they have a weakness right before. So you almost need that nudge from markets to get the Fed to, to stop hiking rates. And so what I would see is that when the, the market's gonna keep, there's gonna be weakness through Q1, eventually financial conditions will, will tighten enough and we'll see that in spreads and in equity prices where the Fed feels okay actually listening to the data and plus the data is going to become so compelling the fed's going to have to eventually move and that's that's part of what we're seeing here so come february march of next year that happens the fed pauses i think you get a relief relief rally we're not quite at the recession yet in my view so you do get a relief rally pauses are usually positive for stocks bonds and commodities you have this goldilocks period where everybody's thinking oh my gosh the fed hike it's over monetary policy no longer a headwind the economy hasn't fallen apart yet, so it's this air pocket. And I expect that to happen this time as well, but it's probably just a big bull trap. Don't want to get sucked in. We see weakness coming in the second half of 23. If we look at equities and bonds through a potential recession, um, the big question now is whether the recession is actually priced in or not. Um, I've seen various attempts of actually gauging that question, but what's your take and uh, do you have any like historical um, comparisons that we can lean on? Yeah, so especially when we're at 4,000 and 4.5% uh, on the Fed funds rate, so in my view, that's we were pricing in a soft landing more or less. And so what we wanted to do is go back. I think that you don't want to bet on a soft landing when it's already priced in. You want to bet on a soft landing when the market thinks we're going to have a hard landing. So right now the market's pricing a soft landing, and I don't think there's any way to get there. And one of the ways you can kind of triangulate that is go back to the last time we had a Fed engineered soft landing, which was 94, 95 case. So we have two charts on that. 
first chart here is basically a little economic index. We take uh, industrial production, real PCE, payrolls, things like that, and we gauge the economic activity at the Fed's pause in 1995. And now we look at it, and that's the top clip of that chart. Then we look at the bottom clip is where we are today. So economic aggregate economic activity on these four uh, indicators we're looking at is basically half and deteriorating today. So that's chart number one. Now we go back and look at the Fed funds rate versus the two-year back in 1994-95 period. So that chart, Brian. And what we see here is that, and this is really important because yesterday or earlier this week when the Fed raised rates to 4.5%, that's when we saw the two-year and Fed funds rate invert. And so historically, very much like clockwork, every time these relation, this relationship inverts, the Fed goes on pause and a number of other uh, downstream impacts on markets happens. And so historically, you would expect the Fed to pause right now because we, they are now, you now have an inverted Fed funds rate in two year, but they are going to keep going. So they're behind the curve. Back in 94, going to this chart, the Fed paused well before the two year and the Fed funds rate inverted. So you can see the purple line is the two year above the Fed funds rate. And then later in the cycle, the two year drops dramatically and inverts with the Fed funds rate in the Fed cuts rates in response to that. So the message of 94 is the economic activity was much stronger than it is now, and the Fed was in front of the curve. Today, they're behind the curve. And with each meeting that goes by, and this inversion gets worse, the Fed grows more behind the curve. And the odds of a soft landing are just are slim to none at this point in my view. What are going to be the triggers in Q1 for that so-called Fed pause? Is it the labor market or is it inflation numbers? What's your take on uh, that, Warren, before we move to the actual inflation nerdery? Right. I think that to me, it's going to be a combination of, uh, I think the labor market is going to be the last thing to crack here. And so that's kind of the thing that's throwing everything off. And a lot of people are confusing cause and effect and saying the labor market is causing inflation. In fact, no, it's like, it's kind of a relic of what caused of, of the inflation and the and the uh, the um, stimulus we saw. So I don't think that's going to be the factor. I think it's going to be inflation data rolling over hard, and then uh, on top of that, I think it's going to be a sell-off in the stock market. So we don't, no one wants to talk about that, but it's it's a like I said, it's a necessary predicate to a Fed pause to see uh, some measure of weakness in the stock market and in credit spreads, i.e. financial conditions prior to a pause. So I think that's what we see. We get about a weakness, we get better inflation data, and the Fed's able to relent. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Let's look at the inflation details. You've done a lot of work on US inflation. I've done a lot of work on US inflation. Uh, so let's compare our notes here, Warren. Um, what, what speaks in favor of this inflation right now and what speaks in favor of a re-inflation environment in 2023? Man, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that because I think it's a really 
we we like to at three fourteen we like to steel man opposition op- opposing ideas. So if we get really uh, boxed in onto a, a one point of view, we like to try and make the best case for the opposing point of view. So I'd love to hear the case for inflation. Maybe we could talk about that. But our base case is that inflation is coming down rapidly. So you have basically new car price or car prices in general are going to go from inflation to deflation, probably the next print. Energy will follow suit by spring. Infl- energy is going to be deflationary, um, not disinflationary, deflationary. And you, you start thinking about the effects of $80 oil versus when we get into the spring. $150 oil from last year and maximum crack spreads. I mean, you're going to get a huge downside shock on CPI just from energy and cars. I mean, our idea was that cars just give back half of their post pandemic uh, outsized gains, plus oil prices stabilized around $85 a barrel. You're back at 2% CPI just with those two things. Now, I think the upside is going to be provided by shelter inflation because you have when we've gone through the, the wackiness and i know you've done the work too of uh of uh the the rent component of cpi and so that because new rents and existing rents there's been a huge divergence there you're going to see just a huge delay in the cpi shelter inflation coming down and reflecting reality so that's the risk to the call of getting all the way to like two percent on cpi but just the work that goods or that cars and energy are going to do is going to do a lot of uh, the disinflationary heavy lifting. The final point I'd make, uh, and we have a chart on this too, the segment of, of the CPI the Fed's really zeroed in on right now and that the inflationistas are still uh, holding tight to is the Services Act Shelter. So we have a chart on that, Services Act Shelter. And the idea, and I think Powell even said this, is that Services Act Shelter is kind of where you would see that wage price spiral idea show up in the data if you were to actually get that and it's still decently high right now but we like to compare that to uh, daily tax receipt data which is a real-time reflection of like what's going on in the labor market the u.s economy and this is a a a data set that we use extensively in our models and work as we get it every single day from the fed flow funds report and there's a huge dichotomy between these two series right now and usually when you see this where tax receipt data is weak and services less rent of shelter is strong you're going to get a correction down in cpi and those those trailing data points so i think when we look across the curve it's a disinflationary impulse uh the only way i see and i want to get your opinion the only way i see inflation coming back is through some reignition of the the oil spike we saw uh last year something like that around the food and food commodities energy commodities and whatnot yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. And uh, let me show a, a few charts uh, from my work on U.S. inflation uh, that relates to what you just said on on goods. Uh, first of all, chart three, Brian, um, I've labeled it. If you want to buy a car, then wait. Uh, and right now we actually have actual deflation in cars already. Um, if you look at auction data, such as the Mannheim index, um, we are closing in on minus 15 percent year over year. Um, in the used car uh, category in the consumer price index. So that's actual deflation. If we move to chart four, Brian, um, it's just a, a representation of what Warren um, talked about in relation to energy. I just used the forward curve, or the futures curve rather, for the um, crude oil uh, and allowed that to predict 
the energy CPI component. Um, and as you can see from the uh, orange dotted line, uh, already uh, in Q1 and into the early parts of Q2, we go from an inflationary impulse to a deflationary impulse just um, due to uh, mechanics, essentially. Uh, you're measuring the price against uh, exactly one year ago. Uh, and I mean, to me, it's very, very hard to see oil prices bouncing to a level where they actually start contributing to inflation again. Um, and this is, uh, to me, um, a comforting sign for the disinflation camp. Uh, if it was the case that oil just needed to bounce to 85 or 90 uh, to get inflation back uh, from a momentum perspective, it would have been another case. But we really need a rally in oil uh, for this to turn around. Uh, so I think that the the unknown, or rather the known unknown here is natural gas. It's not that important in the US uh, consumer price index, but it's vastly important in the European consumer price index right now. And I think that's the reason why we have this divergence between European inflation data and US inflation data right now. You can essentially explain that away with natural gas more or less on a standalone basis. So can I come up with good arguments why inflation is headed high again? Well. Sure, I can, but um, I struggle to find convincing arguments for the next six to nine months. Um, I think it's easier to make the case, say, two to three years down the road. And let me just use one chart uh, to explain why chart A, Brian. Um, essentially, um, Warren, every time in history we've had an inflation top um, that sort of fairly resembles what we've had this year, uh, we've had a second top in inflation, actually. Um, that's the case from the 70s. That was the case post the uh, Second World War. And obviously, you cannot compare uh, those history, uh, historical um, scenarios to today. But in any case, there is a clear risk that if you allow the economy to run hot at a time where we haven't solved the supply side situation, uh, say in, in late 23, early 24, it may reignite the inflation pressure just via the energy channel once again. So that's kind of my risk scenario now that we get a double top in inflation due to a lack of energy globally, essentially, into 24, 25. Uh, I'm not sure that we've sold the supply side of this equation on energy uh, within that time frame, but uh, I'd like your take on, on, on that exact question as well. No, we haven't. I think you're right. With uh, every, I agree with all the points you're making. Just to give like a little bit extra on the why aren't we going to get the same kind of oil spike to change the disinflationary impulse that we're seeing here through the first half of 2023 into inflation or some kind of just uh, moderate uh, or flatlining is you have to remember we had record crack spreads and refining margins on top of the $140, $50 oil prices. So the actual price for fuel that was being baked into CPI baskets was something more of plus $200 a barrel. You know, we were at like a $60 crack spread. So the consumer prices were at some point $220 a barrel last year, you know, and so it's just, it's, it would take so much to get back there. And I, I just don't see it happening. I don't think we've, we've solved anything at the same time on the supply side. You know, we've, we've, we've patched some holes with SPR. I think a lot of the, the, the crisis, and you, are, you and I were talking about this beforehand, has been less acute than we could have imagined at the beginning of the, the war. And there have been a lot of solved uh, problems, but there's, some, there's a slow bleed 
of supply as a result of this, no matter what. You know, the brain drain we've seen out of Russia is a huge issue. And the history of countries when they lose uh, Western uh, expertise when it comes to oil and gas production is that you get a terminal decline. And so, you know, that's a that's a huge, huge deal. And just it, it changed overnight in some ways, the supply and demand balance of the oil and gas markets. And so we're, we're going to be living with that for years into the future. Um, and that's what, one of the things we've been telling our clients from the get-go of this, this conflict is that we're going to get a re-rating of domestic oil and gas companies because just the, the energy security is going to be valued more. Those securities are going to be valued more. Management teams are behaving this time around. And so I think that's part of why we've seen the, the energy sector hold up during this, uh, this oil uh, slide here in the last couple months. I wanted to play a soundbite for you um, from a discussion between Raoul Pal and the great Felix Zulov, the legendary Swiss hedge fund manager. And I think he's actually older than the two of us combined, Warren. Um, so, I mean, he knows about inflation um, and he's got a few points to make when it comes to inflation over the next decade compared to the decade that we've just been through. So uh, let's listen to Felix and get back to the discussion on energy. So I believe this is going to be more inflation down the road. I think the first inflation wave has peaked. We are in a, a downtrend into probably late 23, the second half. And if the world develops along the lines I expect, then I would expect a second wave of inflation from late 23 into 25 or 26. And that will lead to much higher inflation that we have seen. And this is because I expect eventually some sort of calamity uh, in the first part of, the, of next year, of 23, where the central banks will, um, will change and will uh, ease. The entire interview called The World We Knew for 30 Years is Gone is available already today at the Real Vision platform for our subscribers. But back to you, uh, Warren. Felix is uh, fairly clear in his thinking here. Um, he expects inflation to decelerate into next year, as the two of us do. But um, he's also very explicit that from late 23 and into 25, 26, he expects another substantial peak in inflation as a consequence of a lack of energy. Do you think that playbook is still alive, so to speak? I mean, absolutely. And this has been really difficult. I think, I think it was with you that we, we had this conversation. It's just not mixing the secular and the cyclical when you're talking about these things. I think that's tripped so many people up this time around because I have friends and people who expect to have a different view on cyclical inflation than I do or we do at this point in time. And when we get into arguments, a lot of the, the supporting evidence for inflation next year are actually secular drivers of inflation, whether it's deglobalization or energy shortages or things like that. I think those those are those are issues for the long term. And I believe a lot of those stories are true. But in the next 12 months, I mean this is much more of a bottoms up exercise of looking at the CPI basket and determining, you know, what's going to drive it. And ultimately you can tell me that the CPI is BS or whatever, but that's the game we're playing. That's what the Fed's looking at. And so 
that's what I think. If you want to make money and you want to be on the right side of markets and understand what the Fed's doing, that's what you should be gaming out. And so I think these things, if they make sense, I'm very sympathetic to a lot of these secular inflation stories, but you have to just play what's right in front of you right now. It's disinflation. Let's talk about the energy markets just in front of us. Um, we've had a G7 price cap being implemented on Russian oil. Was it um, last week? We have various moving parts. The SBR trade is potentially live now that we know that the Biden administration intends on buying, is it 3 million barrels of oil uh, with February delivery? Um, it's a, uh, basically a drop in the water. But anyway, it seems as if they're looking at current price levels, pondering whether to utilize them to refill the SPR. What do you make of the most recent price action in um, in oil? It didn't really seem as if the market cared too much about that SPR headline today. I think it's, it's uh, something the market can kind of see through. Yeah, three million barrels is, is nothing. Um, and so I don't think it matters quite yet. And yeah, they're looking at it. I never really believed that the, uh, the real... I never, there was never a point where my bull case involved the SBR being refilled. I just don't, I don't know, maybe it happens. If it does, then great, but I don't see it happening, honestly. I think we have a better chance of the SBR continuing to be drained going forward than refilled. Um, but with that said, I think the big driver of prices right now is absolutely we're getting a little bit of weakening in demand. And obviously China has come offline and, you know, to anyone's guess, does this reopening stick? And even if it does happen, what happens with uh, COVID spreading over in China? And the fact they haven't, zero COVID has its own problems as far as uh, herd immunity and things like that aren't reached yet. So who knows how that reopening happens? But I think the real proximate cause of the, the sell-off right now is, is really positioning. So we came into this period of time where money managers, hedge funds, and CTAs were overly long positioned. So they basically had no short positions on and the price started moving against them. You always have kind of a trapdoor effect because of the Mexico hedging program in this late part of the year. You also have ad valorem taxes that are levied in Louisiana and Texas. So there's an incentive to get that oil out of storage and onto the market before year end. So you have a lot of negative seasonal factors. You mix that with positioning that was uh, overly optimistic and prices came down. And now you've got what the exact opposite effect. You're starting to see short positions build back up and what we've shown is that as the curve slips into out of this backwardation and more in contango, you suck more of those money managers in because the negative roll yield of holding a short position turns into a positive roll yield if you actually do go to contango. And so you have a bunch of dynamics. I'm not ready to get long the market right now. Our model is still neutral, but you can see a place for, especially if you get a little bit more downside, where just one right catalyst on the bull side will send this thing much higher in the next, uh, probably call it Q1 is when I would expect that to happen. And so, yeah, that's the, uh, that's what I see is more positioning than anything in market structure behind the sell-off. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. One of the charts that uh, made the rounds throughout the past few weeks is the spread between 
energy stocks and the actual oil price. Um, and if you measure it in standard deviations, it's one of the biggest spreads that we've seen at least since 2014 when we had that big drop in the oil price. So and energy stocks are trading with a positive spread to the actual physical market. Um, what do you make of that spread? Is it something that worries you um, from the long perspective of energy stocks? For sure, yeah. So, Brian, maybe show that scatter plot I have of, um, of oil versus energy stocks so we can really tee it up. This is what uh, you know, Andreas is talking about here. What I'm looking at in this chart is the rolling 100-day returns, comparing rolling 100-day returns of oil versus the energy sector. And we've highlighted the last month's performance, which is a huge outlier. So you basically had energy sector going up and holding, holding together during the sell-off while oil is collapsing. And so I think we're in kind of uncharted territory in this way. You can see it on this, this chart. Uh, to me, it makes some sense because what we called for, we called for a 40 or 50% re-rating on an oil-adjusted basis. And this was back in March that we called for this for the energy sector. So what we've seen is basically a 40 or 50% oil-adjusted re-rating of multiples out of the energy sector. And so, you know, I think this goes back to the idea that energy security in, in domestic producers are going to be valued higher coming out of this. And there's all kinds of, we've written extensively about the diversification benefits of the energy sector that I think portfolio managers are, are picking up on. So I think there's a lot of tailwinds for the energy sector, not to, not to forget that natural gas is driving a lot of the profitability here. Natural gas is hung in there. Crack spreads for downstream are still decent. So there are other drivers. Energy sector is not just a call on oil prices. But at the same time, I think there's just there's just a lot of things going for the energy sector as an investment. And so I, I'm worried. I would love to see the pricing where we're at with $100 oil versus $80 oil. But I haven't recommended selling anything in the energy space yet. Warren, we uh, get a bunch of questions, um, and uh, one of them relates to what you just talked about, um, because Ralph is asking you whether you have a strong view on gasoline prices, obviously very correlated to oil prices, but there is, um, of course, an extra added layer when we talk about the price at the pump. So any views um, on the price at the pump for the next three months? Yeah, I don't think... Uh... I think if oil rallies, gas is going to rally. I don't think you're going to have any kind of crazy blowout and crack spreads or refining margins right now. I think the economy is downshifting. So we should see that in spreads at refining margins. And so we should get more normal uh, on refining margins than we've experienced in 2022. So all else equal, you'll see lower gas prices for the same price of oil. But, um, you know, that's it's, it's going to ultimately be dictated by oil prices, which, you know, my... My best guess, I'm neutral on the model right now for crude oil prices, but if I look through to what I think happens in January, I think you get a nice spike. The, the question is, what's the demand backdrop? Can we hold that? We have a question on uh, natural gas and electricity as well, and I guess it's um, directed at me. Um, Andreas, in Denmark, are you seeing big increases in your home heating bill versus last year? And if so, is it mainly supply-related or a combination of supply and demand effects? Um, yes, the answer is yes to that question. Um, the average electricity and uh, heating bill is up um, in between two and a half and three times in Europe. Um, we are a bit better off in Denmark due to um, the Nordic reading being self-sufficient on energy to a large extent. But in any case, the average European household is hit hard by this story. Uh, and I would argue that it's mostly a supply-driven story. Um, if you take 
uh, any given day during the week, we get in between uh, 27 and 30 percent less gas flows from Russia uh, than what we're used to. Um, and we obviously haven't found new supplies to the same extent um, as the um, natural gas that we've lost as a consequence of the uh, war in Ukraine. So I can guarantee you the sanctions on Russia, they are very costly if you look at it from the household's perspective in, um, in Europe as well. Warren, we are running out of time, uh, so I'll allow you a few final remarks before we uh, wrap up the week here. I think we covered it. I think it's. Uh, I think it was great uh, seizing on the fact that the Fed's basically caught and the data is somewhat. You know, we're going to wait for the data to be extraordinarily obvious before the Fed moves. It seems, and the result of that is that we're going to pay a price down the road. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's that's what I see happening. Main dynamic. So to sum up, disinflation is coming, um, and unless the oil price rallies to say 115 to 130 dollars again it seems almost given that inflation will print at lower levels throughout q1 and into the early spring um, and ultimately uh, one would expect that the fed pauses as a consequence of that disinflation for now energy stocks look uh, a little bit elevated relative to physical markets uh, but uh, your oil model is neutral as of now, Warren, and we will uh, keep you posted on um, Warren's thoughts on energy into next year. But since it's Friday, we need a funny meme to conclude the show. Um, and since we are almost banging the drums of deflation, here it is, Homer Simpson. Deflation, woohoo! cheaper beers. Um, I'll leave you with that this Friday. Warren Pies, the founder of 314 Research, once again, it's a pleasure to host you at Real Vision. Thank you. Always enjoy talking to you, Andreas. And um, go visit 314's webpage, a full vouch from uh, from my perspective. Um, really good stuff that uh, Warren and his team does. Um, that was all for this week. We've had a tremendous week in global macro. I hope you enjoyed our coverage at Real Vision. I'll see you again on Monday with the rest of the team. Have a great weekend. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.